So our sermon series on and off, working with Second Thessalonians, because we're going to have to be on the ball with us, aren't we? Uh, so our sermon series looking at Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, the letters to the church. That is the plan. God willing, that is... That's the plan. Now, if you've been here for any length of time at all, any LCPC at all, you know how I would normally begin a sermon series, I think. Not always, but sometimes what we'll do is we'll have a short section at the beginning of a sermon series where we'll look at some of the kind of introductory material, a book of the Bible. Won't we do that like before we get to a text? If we're looking at, let's say we're looking at the book of Ezra or Colossians, I'll maybe talk for a moment or two about authorship and genre and date and all this introductory stuff, right? We're not going to do that tonight. Okay, not going to do that this evening. I'll tell you why we're not going to do it tonight. If we get straight to the text of Holy Scripture this evening, what we'll find is a lot of the stuff that we need to know about Revelation actually just beautifully, naturally is there in front of us, flows from this text. So we don't need a start. We don't need a separate section. We can just hit the ground running. I want to ask you this though. Are you keen? I mean, are you prayerfully enthused? I mean, we get to read and study a book of the Bible together. We get to read and study a book where we're promised blessing from God in Revelation. We should be enthused. Are we enthused? Well, if you've got your Bible there, let's look at the first point this evening. Because I think we see here the Christ who speaks to his church. The Christ who speaks to his church. Right, I could be wrong about this. Could be totally wrong, but I've got a hunch. This is my suspicion. I suspect that Christians in the 21st century, by and large, many, are slightly intimidated by the book of Revelation. I think a lot of believers in the 21st century slightly wary of the last book of the Bible. Now, I'm going to put this down largely to the effect that what is called dispensationalism has had on the 21st century church. Now, we know what we're dealing with with dispensationalism, don't we? It's been mentioned recently in our services. So dispensationalism, that kind of out there, wacky view of the Bible that breaks Scripture into many different ideas and ages and nuances. Now, dispensationalism teaches a lot of things, erroneous things. One of the things it teaches us is that this book in front of us is not for you. So a huge part of evangelical churches in the world today will say that this book is not for us. It's not for today, that this is a book for another you know, future age, nothing to do with us at all. It's for, and what I think has happened is that that system, dispensationalism, has like almost like a disease so infiltrated the church, and even in some reformed churches, that a lot of us even kind of scratch our heads. And we're like, well, what is Revelation then? Like, what is this? Is it for us? I mean, is it for t- today? Is it for the future? What's going on here? You see? Now, Hopefully it helps you if I just confirm this very simple fact. Do you know what? Revelation is for you. Like you can embrace this book. You can read this book. You can love this book. The book of Revelation is written for the last age, the last days. When are the last days? The time from Christ's resurrection, 
ascension to Christ's return. What does that mean? Revelation is a book for today. It's, it is. It's a book for you. It's a book for me. We, we, we don't be intimidated. Embrace it. Read it. Study it. Love it. But hopefully it also helps us if we just know that what I said a moment ago is right and true. That a lot of what you need to know about Revelation is just in your hands in front of you. So look at verse 9 with me. See, immediately, if you look at verse 9, immediately we are told about the authorship of the book, are we not? So who writes Revelation? So this apocalyptic book, similar in genre to Daniel, Ezekiel, it's written by John. Which John? John the Apostle, you know, the author of the gospel, the beloved disciple, late on in his life, he writes Revelation. So you've got a box in front of you, authorship, ticket. We know authors is John. But then, read on in verse 9. Can we not also tick the box for setting? Because you see the first theme that John addresses in verse 9? He speaks about tribulation. I think that's very helpful for us when we're dealing with Revelation, this idea of tribulation. Very helpful indeed. Because maybe some of the younger people, maybe the boys and girls in here, maybe you have done some work on the Roman Empire before. Have you? In your schooling? You've done stuff with the Romans. Maybe the boys and girls know that at the end of the first century, when this book was written... There was a man called Domitian who was emperor in Rome. Have you heard of Domitian? He was Roman emperor. Now, does that help us in any way? Does it? You bet your bottom dollar it helps us. It means that the book of Revelation appears and is written at a time when clouds were appearing on the horizon for the church. You have to appreciate this if you're going to understand Revelation. This book is written almost, in a sense, in the calm before a ferocious storm for the people of God. You following what I'm saying to you? That the end of the first century, yes, there was persecution. So there was suppression, state suppression of the church. But what we must appreciate as LCPC just now is that that was only going to get worse. The persecution was just about to get worse. So Revelation appears in the calm before this ferocious storm. Revelation is a book to pair and equip believers as they enter into more overt pain and persecution. So you tick in a box of authorship. You've just ticked the box of setting. Do you think we can add the box of location as well to these things? Because do you notice how John speaks of himself in verse 9? It's a really interesting thing, don't you think? See what he says about himself in verse 9. Have a look. He calls himself a partner in that tribulation. And I think if you, if you pay any attention to the text here, you can see exactly why he's a partner in the tribulation. Do you see where he is? He's in a place called Patmos. So it's an island in the Mediterranean. He gives you the reason. He says, I'm in Patmos on account of the word of God. And you can put the pieces of the jigsaw really easily together, can't you? He's been banished. John the Apostle has been stripped of his, his pastor work. And he's been taken out of the church and he's been sent away to Patmos as a political prisoner, an exile. He's been banished. And it is there on Patmos on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, through the Holy Spirit, 
what happens to this man? The Lord Christ addresses him and speaks to him. So you with me? All right, you. You've got authorship. You've got setting. You've got location. All of that. I'm just trying to get to this next thing, and that's the recipients uh, of this uh, letter. Now, were you any good at geography in school? Was geography a, a good subject for you? I was dreadful at geography in school. I love geography now, hopeless at geography when I was in school. The only thing that I learned in geography in school was that geography teachers have a terrible fashion sense. It's the only thing that I got about geography. Don't know what it is, but geography teachers worldwide, but it seems to be the case. If you are good at geography in school, maybe you know something about the cities that are mentioned before you in verse 11. Because the instruction from Jesus is to, to John to send this book, Revelation, to the churches in. Let's list them, will we? Do you see them? To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Churches, it's, the churches, it's maybe worth picturing. Churches that if you look at an ancient map, these are cities, churches, that would appear almost, it's, it's quite rough, but a rough crescent shape, you know, a moon shape, a rough crescent shape in what is modern day Turkey, right? Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear that instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ, you have got a question that must be answered, don't you? To think about it, Christ Jesus says to John, send this book, this letter, these letters to those churches. What question do you ask there? If, yeah, like you ask, why them? Don't you ask that? I mean, there was lots of churches in that particular part of the world. Loads of them. So why not them? And then I'm, I'm reading this as well. Maybe you're doing the same thing. And you're, and you're thinking, right, well, okay, Lord, but why not send it to the church in Jerusalem? And what about if we're, if we're talking about... Why not the Roman? Why not send, the, send these letters? This, why not send it to the church in Rome? Do you, like, why these particular churches, right? Let, 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 let me give you an answer to that. Okay, partly is because these churches were strategic places, strategic, strategic churches, congregations, right? You understand, you understand, like the bulk numerically of Christians lived in that particular part of the world at that time. And these cities were centers of commerce, trade. They were Postal centers, right? So these churches are important. They're strategic congregations. We could say that. We could be done with it. That would be part of an answer. It's not the full answer. Because you have to count them. How many churches do we have in front? How many churches does Jesus command John to send this, this book? How many? What do we say? Come on. We say it? Seven. And what do we know about that number in scripture. What do we know about the number of We know it is the number of completeness in scripture, don't we? We know it is the number of wholeness in scripture. Do you see what's going on here? Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is writing to these particular churches. There's a word here to Ephesus and Sardis, but what's he doing? Who are these letters to? These are letters to the universal church. And you have to understand that these churches here named, they stand for, they represent all of the people of God. Christ Jesus is writing to all of his congregations in here, in Revelation, all of his churches. And I think honestly, and I mean it, that should enthuse us. Because what does it mean in this sermon series? What are we going to do? 
we are going to read and hear and listen to and study letters that Christ Jesus has sent to us. I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't it exciting? These are letters that God has written to London City Presbyterian Church. Written to us. And you think about that. Unpack that a little bit. Think about what I've just said. That maybe as we are about to enter increasing suppression from the state of the Christian faith in the UK in the 21st century. Now maybe as, maybe as we face increasing hostile for, hostility from our culture. Maybe, who knows, like who knows how it's going to play out in the next few years. But if it's going this way, the way it has done the last decade, who knows, maybe we're about to enter a time of pain and persecution in London as Christians. And in advance of that, what do we get to do? We get to read letters from Christ Jesus into that setting. Don't know about you. I am enthused to hear what Jesus has to say. So we see the Christ who speaks to his church. The second thing we see here, though, as we move on, is the Christ who cares for his church. The Christ who cares for his church. I would ask you a favor. I would ask you to do this. If you would look at verse 13. Who is it? That John turns to see. It's interesting. Don't you think it's interesting what, what Jesus does before he goes straight into the detail of the letters? He provides a picture, a vision of himself in his heavenly glory. Before he gets into the nitty gritty, right down into the detail of the letters, he provides John, he provides you, before we get to the context, context of the letters, he gives you a vision of himself. But I repeat the question. Who does John see? He hears the voice and he turns around, verse 13, and he sees the Son of Man. And what is the detail? The first detail there. He is, if you, if you get the detail with me, he is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. Isn't he? Now, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say here because I think it's important for how we put this sermon together and understand this portion of scripture. The son and there, our Christ is dressed in priestly garments. You understand? We learn that from, from Exodus, that this idea of a long robe with this uh, golden sash, this woven golden sash across was the, 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 the high priest. This is priestly garments. We learn that from Exodus. It's confirmed in history and Josephus and so forth. These are priestly garments. So that's one thing. And it's important. If we're going to understand that, that Christ here, Christ is pr- as priest, high priest, great high priest. But I've got a question for you. Of course, I've got a question for you. See, when you read that first expression in verse 13 of the description of Christ, what do you think? Do you see it? The son of man. This tests how on the ball we are tonight. What do you think of, Christian friend, when you hear that expression, the son of man? Hmm? Because I, I, I think there's real danger here. Maybe the boys and girls can listen to this as well. Real danger here that we th- hear that title, son of man, and we think of the lowly view of Jesus. We, we perhaps think of this as a humble son of man. The son of man, we think of his lowly humanity, perhaps. 
And I want you all to understand that's the complete opposite, the antithesis of the message here. Like, did you listen to Reverend Perkins earlier on and his reading in Daniel chapter 7? Did you pick up on that was the origin of the title of the Son of Man? And if you were really paying attention, what did Reverend Perkins read and tell you? Who's the Son of Man? The Son of Man is that exalted figure who comes to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man receives from the Ancient of Days all power and all dominion and all glory. Now, do you see the simple thing I'm saying to you? When you read Son of Man, don't think of it as a lowly, humble title for Jesus. Understand that it is his majesty that has been underlined in this portion of Scripture. This is an exalted figure that is before you. And don't you agree that that idea is just underlined by the details that follow? And I would ask you to look at verse 14 and marvel at what is said of your Savior and Lord. Look at these details. I wonder, do you see what is happening? Look at verse 14 and 15. Do you see what's happening? Like descriptions of the almighty Yahweh of God in the Old Testament are being taken out of the Old Testament descriptions of Yahweh and they have are, are, are being draped over the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Do you see this? Like, look at this. We are told that his hair was like wool. Reverend Perkins reading earlier on, that was the description of God, the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. Read on. We are told that his eyes were like fire. The same is said of God in Daniel chapter 10. And his voice is like roaring waters. It's quite difficult to imagine that, isn't it? His voice is like roaring waters. That's said of God in Ezekiel 43. His mouth, look at that, his mouth brings forth a sword. That's said of God in Isaiah 41. The list goes on and on and on. All these descriptions of God now, now associated, attributed to this glorious Son of Man. Isn't it marvelous? It's so difficult in a sense to imagine it. We just bow. In awe, we bow in wonder at this majestic high priest. But if we are confronted with the majesty of the person of Christ in this vision, then what of his work? Because on Patmos, on this island, as John the Apostle turns, what is the Son of Man doing? Well, that takes us to what I think is probably the most mysterious part. It's all, it's, it's all pretty mysterious. But the most mysterious part of this vision in verse 12, if you look at it, it's the first thing that John sees. John turns on this island. After hearing this great voice, he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. And you're with me, right? Isn't it? Can you imagine... You read it for the first time, right? And it's, and it's so mysterious and it's so, st- seven lampstands and you're scratching your head, aren't you? And it's mysterious and it's strange and it's odd until God resolves it for you in verse 20. That is just the same as Zechariah chapter 4. That these temple lampstands, they represent, they stand for, do you see? They stand for the church. The temple lampstands, they stand for the people of God. And do you know what? I wish we had longer. 
Because if we had longer, couldn't we think about what that image says to you about your role as a believer and the role of LCPC? Like you think about it, like we are what? We are golden lampstands. What, what does that say about the role of the church if we're a lampstand? What would you say? Come on, if, what would you say that we're a lampstand? You would say, well, we're to be a light. No. We're not a lamp. We're a lampstand. Like our, our role is to hold out, hold up the light of Christ into the darkness of this world. And we could dig into that. And we could look at that. We could unpack it. And we, we could. But I think, you know what? That would be doing a disservice to this text. Because we're not supposed to, as a congregation, stand and stare at these golden lampstands. What are we, what are we supposed to be looking at? To whom should we be gazing at this point? We should be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have a very simple question for you. Where is the Son of Man in this portion of Scripture? Where is he? Look at it. Look at verse 13. Where is Jesus? Where is our Christ? Look at it. He is in the midst of the lampstands of the church. He's in the midst of it. Come on. Read it. You were there. And imagine being in Ephesus and facing persecution. Imagine the horror of that. Can you imagine how welcome that is? Christ saying to his people, I am in the midst of you. I am in the midst, the great high priest saying, I am in the midst of my people. And do you see the message though? Do you see it? Just as the high priest in the temple, what was his role? What was part of his role? His part of his role was to tend to the lampstand in the Old Testament temple. To trim the wick of the, of the lampstand and to guard the, lamp, the, the, the role of the high priest to refuel the lamp in the temple. Do you hear what Christ is saying to them and to you? He is with us to tend to us. Christ amongst his people to protect us. Christ saying to us, even before we get to the letters, I am with you to tend to you, to guard you, to protect you, to fill you, to refuel you so that your light does not diminish, so that your light does not go out for me. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it? Christ Jesus saying to his people, I am at work. I am in the midst of my church. So we see the Christ who speaks to his church. We see the Christ who cares for his church. And then we close with the Christ who rules over his church. The Christ who rules over his church. Okay, we've seen something of Christ as this great and glorious high priest. I, to be honest, do not think that that is the main emphasis of this text of Scripture. I think the main emphasis of this portion of Scripture is on another of Christ's mediatorial roles. I'll explain what I mean. The emphasis, the main emphasis here is not on Christ's priestly function. The main emphasis is on Christ's kingly rule. I want everyone to get it and hear it. I'll say it again. The emphasis, main emphasis, not on Christ's priestly function, but on his kingly rule. That's what this portion of scripture is about. We see it in two ways. First way, have a look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18. I mean, even to lead into verse 18 just blows your mind, doesn't it? You have this great claim of divinity, this divine claim, I am the first and the last. But then drink in what the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, says. Christ calls himself the living one. 
the one who died and is alive forevermore. The one, look at this, the one with the keys of death and Hades. And I want to repeat what I said to you. Can you imagine how marvelous and encouraging that would have been to the first century people of God? Do you know what we're going to find out in the sermon series? Some of these people were dying for their faith. No messing about, right? I mean, being martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. Imagine what that's like for the congregation, seeing people they love and know, their brothers and sisters in Christ being killed on account of the gospel. And what does Christ do? Before he sends out these letters, what does he do? He reminds them that he is king. And he reminds these congregations that he is the one who has control, but control even over the realm of death. Doesn't that encourage us? Doesn't it? Everything about our future, everything about the afterlife, what happens to us when we die, everything is in the sovereign control of our king. But then there's a second area. And let me say this to you. I I, I can imagine that you realize how contentious a portion of scripture like this is. I mean, I already hinted at dispensational views, but given the uh, terminology, but also the visions and descriptions, you can imagine that, you know, liberal scholarship of scripture just goes to town. On the, there's all manner of crazy ideas. I mean, crazy ideas about what this portion of scripture is about. Weird ideas. Nowhere more so than in verse 20. Because we've been told about stars, and then there is mention of the angels of the seven churches. And I don't have time or inclination even to go into all of these wacky, crazy ideas about who these angels of the seven churches are. Let me just give you a couple of things. First is that some say it could be the ministers of the churches, the human leaders of the churches. So when Jesus says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? It could be to the minister and to the, yep, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe. I'll tell you why I don't think that's the case is because that word angel, this rendered angel there is used, I think it's about 60 times in the book of Revelation. So that's a lot. And in none of those does the word mean anything else other than a heavenly being or a heavenly creature. So who are the angels of the seven churches? They are what they say in the tin. Like we're dealing there with with angels, not divine beings, but heavenly beings, heavenly beings that are associated with these congregations, with these churches, angelic beings that are almost synonymous with these congregations, very closely integrated, connected to churches. And when you see that, that they're synonymous with the churches, If you're anything like me, you just rejoice at what you read in verse 16. Because where are these stars? These angels, synonymous with it. Where are the churches? They are in the right hand of the Son of Man. Isn't that absolutely marvelous? The children sometimes sing that song which I won't sing for you. But they sometimes think, he's got the whole world in his hands. 
And hallelujah, he does. But what is the Son of Man reminding you tonight? That friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has you in his right hand. He has his people, he has his church in his right. No matter what happens. Like no matter how hostile things get in London in the coming years. And no matter how, you know, how much the state tries to suppress the Christian faith and spread the gospel. No matter how hostile people become to you. Yeah. Safe in the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king. He is king in control even of death and hate. And he is king in control of his church. And I just want to end with, with just two very brief comments. Okay, one is to the Christians in here. Isn't it, if you're a Christian, isn't it such a thought to think that this vision before you is of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and friend? Now, do you see what I mean? That that's a thought. We are guilty, guilty, I think, of very often diluting Jesus Christ in our affection, in our worship. So when I say to you, think of Christ, when we think of Christ, what do we think? We think of Jesus very often at his weakest earthly point. Don't we? We think of Jesus and we think Gethsemane when we think of Jesus. We think of Golgotha, Jesus. And I want you to appreciate this vision is how your Savior is tonight. You understand that? This is your Savior. He's not in Gethsemane. He's not in Golgotha. He's in glory. He stands splendid. You understand? He stands in glory, in majesty. He stands with a sword emanating judgment from his mouth. Isn't it marvelous to think this is our Savior, the majestic Son of Man? But, of course, I close with the other comment to those who are not Christians in here. I wonder if you noticed what John does. This son of man appears to him at Patmos. And John falls with his face to the ground. Like Isaiah before him when he was commissioned. And Ezekiel when he was commissioned. John when he is commissioned to write this book, what does he do? He falls, he falls to the ground, face to the dirt and it surely, in the picture of such holiness and splendor and majesty, it's surely falling with a sense of inadequacy. Isn't it? Unworthiness in the face of the Son of Man. He falls with a sense of his sin. And so if you're not a Christian, you must understand this. If nothing else this evening, please, if you are ever to come to me, security in this life or the next, you must do the same. And I'm not saying you need to fall to the ground. No, it's much more precise than that, my friend. If you're going to be right with God, you must fall in submission, in worship and repentance at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that by grace, what will he do? He will scoop you up in his sovereign right hand. The right hand, the all-conquering, all-powerful right hand of the eternal Son of God. Friends, let's pray.
Lord God, we are grateful to you that you're a God who is concerned to encourage your people. That baffles us. Because we are so sinful and so rebellious. And it is an amazing thought that you are even concerned in your word this evening to encourage us as believers in London. Lord God, we thank you that we have to look forward to these letters to study, to hear more from you. We thank you that they will prepare us for any tribulation, trial, and persecution. We thank you most of all tonight that you reign. Your throne is great and high and lifted up. You are the holy God. And tonight we praise you. We pray to you as our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.